This is Commerce Shenanigans, episode 584, a conversation with Brian Wood. Welcome to the Commerce Shenanigans podcast. I'm your host, Adam Chapman, and this is episode 584. It's my conversation with Brian Wood, or should I say, my second conversation with Brian Wood. If you want to listen to my first conversation with Brian Wood, go back and listen to, I believe, episode 488. So it's almost exactly 100 episodes ago, pretty damn close anyway. Uh, I spoke to him on June 22nd last year, uh, in 2017. We talked about a lot of stuff, so you can go back and listen to that episode. Especially at the beginning of this one, we definitely reference, or at least I reference, that original interview and certain things we did and did, did, did not discuss. Us. Uh, at the time, only three issues of the uh, second Rebel series had come out, so now obviously the full series has been out, so we talked about that. Uh, we talked about the upcoming, well, now released series, Sword Daughter. Um, I erroneously, at one point at the very end of the episode, called it Sword Princess by accident, and thankfully, uh, he was so nice that he didn't even uh, correct me, even though he totally should have. Uh, so we talk about Sword Daughter, uh, which just came out on January, sorry, June 6th. Uh, we talk about upcoming projects. We talk about his work on Robotech, uh, which was uh, you know mainly just for the first arc that he did. Although when we first talked to him, it didn't sound like it was just going to be an arc, but uh, it ended up just being an arc. Uh, we talk about um, Robocop. We talk about Terminator. Uh, we talk about a little bit of Generation X, uh, not trying to make him relive bad memories, but uh, just talk about, you know, he's, he mentioned in the first interview that we did that he is the type of thing he didn't really want to think about or ever look at because, uh, you know, his, his writing was pretty green at the time, or at least he views it that way. Uh, so we have to kind of chat about uh, what he would do differently, if anything, or in, besides just doing better. Um, anyways, I think you're really going to enjoy this uh, conversation. It was a really, uh, it was once again, it was a, an extreme pleasure to be able to sit down with Brian and talk about his career, uh, talk about the current projects he's been working on, going a little deeper. Um, I'm a huge fan of Rebels in, in particular. Um, I love both volumes. Um, in some ways, I think in some ways the second one is almost not superior because they're different, but I just I love them both so much. And so we talk about whether or not there's going to be a Rebels 3, um, what's, uh, you know, when Briggsland is going to come back, how Sword Daughter even happened, so we go into all these details. You can email me at comicshenanigans at gmail.com uh, sorry, comicshenanigans at gmail.com, rate and review us on iTunes, subscribe to us on iTunes, and you can also listen to us on Stitcher. Thanks again for joining me for this episode, and uh, make sure to catch us next time. I think we're going to be com- in the upcoming weeks, we're going to be sitting down with I believe Jim Kruger and uh, Pete Woods. Um, so some good stuff on the horizon as we get closer and closer to episode 600. I should probably plan that now. Uh, anyways, thank you so much for joining us, and uh, back into the interview. Here we go. Brian, welcome back to the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. How are you this evening? I'm good, thanks. Thanks for having me back. Absolutely. I was actually looking at it, and I, we'd, uh, I, you know, when I had asked you a little while ago so that we could have this coincide with the release of your new book, but then I realized, I didn't realize it had almost been exactly a year since we've spoken. Uh, so we last spoke, I think, last year on June 22nd, so pretty close to a year. Uh, so time, time really flies. Cause honestly, it doesn't seem like it was <laughs> that long ago. No, it doesn't. So, uh, I was listening actually back our original conversation and I realized, um, we jumped right in at the time talking about all the kind of current projects that were happening at the time. We we're talking about Robotech. We we're talking about rebels on the second volume. And obviously I want to get to those, but I realized that I was kind of remiss and never kind of went back to discover your origin story. Um, what was it about that kind of first interested you in comics or how did comics first become part of your life? It was kind of, uh, this is uh, one of those stories I don't always like to tell because it just shows what a, what an idiot I was. Um, (laughs) but I mean, I mean, first I'll say that I, I went to art school and it was in art school in college that I decided that comics were 
cool things that I should be paying more uh, attention to. I didn't grow grow up with comics okay. um, like a lot of my peers have. Like I don't have the childhood, the rosy childhood memories, <laughs> you know, of Marvel comics or DC comics. You know, I came in later from almost a uh, like a process oriented uh, point of view. You know, like I was in art school learning how to make art. And I was like, comics are an interesting, effective way of telling stories and communicating ideas, you know. So it was a little bit less less emotional, you know. <laughs> but the embarrassing story I always like to tell is before that, um, when I was, I just graduated high school and I had a cousin older than me who um, was a comics nerd, um, you know, collected a whole bunch of them and was recently getting re- remarried. And his new wife was like, you got to get these comics out of the house. <laughs> she was like, not, not down with it. I'm sure it was like, it's like the classic story. I'm sure she was like, what are you doing with all this like kid stuff? You know, if I'm going to marry you, we're not going to have this kind of crap around the, around the house. So he showed up at my apartment with boxes and boxes and boxes of comics. <laughs> and like I said, I didn't know, know any of this stuff. Right. So I'm looking through it and I realize in retrospect like now I can look back and I'm like, oh, that was Watchmen I was reading. Oh, that was The Dark Knight. Like it was sort of this was this was the late '80s, so it was like a lot of current stuff, you know. But but with really good uh, taste, you know. There are a bunch of other of other things that I that I read, but most of it I didn't read because it was like thousands of comics, right? <laughs> and um, so I just kind of had them around. Um, and I honestly don't know if he thought he was giving them to me for good <laughs> or if I was supposed to be keeping them them safe. But when I was, this is when I was living in, Ver, in Vermont and when I was going to come to New York City for college, I ended up selling like a dozen long, long boxes for about 20 bucks. Oh my God. Because <laughs> yeah. I didn't know. I, like yeah. I'm trying to clear out my like apart, apartment and somebody came from the... Somebody really took it, took advantage of me, basically, and I was an idiot, you know, and didn't care. So he's like, "I'll give you twenty bucks," and I'm like, "Yeah, fine." And I'm sure he was like, "Oh my god, <laughs> I, can't, I can't believe that. I can't believe this guy said yes." So that's kind of an embarrassing story. I don't always tell, but uh, um, but then I gave him not a second thought until years and years later when I was in college and uh, stopped at the at the comic book shop at St. St. Mark's Comics in New, in New York because uh, I had seen some Dave, Dave McKean uh, work in magazines and someone said, this guy does covers for, for comics. And uh, that didn't make any sense to me because in my mind, comics were, you know, like four-color newsprint crap to be honest with you at the time you know like like extremely disposable into into entertainment and dave mckean was like a high-end photographer artist type so um so i discovered vertigo from there from a purely artistic point of point of view and then weirdly pivoted over to fantagraphics and drawn in quarterly at the time Mm -hmm. um because of the comic hate Peter Peter Bag's hate, oh, yeah. which uh, I could really re- relate to at the time, like as a as a twenty something slacker, uh, <laughs> I 
I could really buy into that in minimum wage also, which was also very relevant to my current life or my life at the time. So, I mean, so then I just sort of, so then I got into it for real and sort of re-educated myself on all the classics and the rest is history from there. Um, but that was sort of like my slightly oddball origin. <laughs> it's interesting because the, uh, the kind of, the idea of someone kind of finding someone selling comics and not really knowing what they had and, and taking advantage of them, I feel like is usually reserved for like, you know, parents who don't know any better or like grandparents who had no idea, not usually someone a little bit more contemporary. Yeah, right. And I didn't, I never told my cousin this. He never asked. Um, so it was never spoke, spoken of again. And <laughs> I always get that real twinge of like embarrassment and guilt when I think, think about it. Um, because it was stupid, you know, it was dumb. I mean, even if I didn't care about the books, I should have known that they, that I could have gotten more, more out of the guy. <sighs> so let's fast forward then a little, um, how did, where and when, how does channel zero happen? That, um, channel zero was a product of my work in college. Like I, I went to art school. I was, uh, an illustration major um, my, my school, unlike others, didn't teach comics as its own thing. Um, there are a couple other art schools that do have sort of like a, if not a dedicated graphic novel comic book track, they offered classes in it you could take, but mine didn't. Um, so I would find ways, ways around that by just, if I was given an assignment, I would do it as a comic. Hmm. Even if I was like kind of breaking the rules or bending the rules, you know, I was kind of like really eager, a little desperate to like experiment with this form. Um, so I did a, a whole bunch, I did hundreds of pages of comics during, you know, that I was writing and drawing during college and Channel Zero, um, it all kind of like evolved into what became titled Channel, Channel Zero, which was part of my senior. Uh, thesis. And um, also at this time, I had sort of found the other people in my uh, in my school who were also kind of, kind of into comics. So we had been putting out these anthologies. Uh, we'd go to like China, Chinatown to these like real hole in the wall printers and we'd have them print up several hundred co copies of a comic that we all had had a story in. Um, and we did nothing with it. Like I, I look back and I'm like, what were we actually trying to like accomplish? I don't know, you know, but we did it, but we mocked it up to look like it was, it was real. And I'm sure at the time I was like, I can use this to get, to get work. You know, I think that was the rationale. Um, but really it was sort of like, I mean, I look back and it was also a great education in not just the writing and the drawing of a comic, but like prepping it for print and talking to like a printer, even a printer like that, you know, and troubleshooting, getting all the dimensions right, you know, hurting, it was like hurting cats, getting all of, all of us together to get everybody's work in on time. So that was value, valuable from like a project management point of, point of view. Um, so I had this channel, channel zero comic, it was 14 pages long. And I took it to my first San Diego comic, comic, comic con. And uh, put put a copy into about twenty different manila envelopes and just handed them out to every publisher I saw. 
I didn't know a whole lot about the the differences between all these publishers. Like I was handing them in indiscriminately to anybody who would take it, basically. And uh, I got a kind of a nibble from from Vertigo from Shelley Bond at the time. She was like, I don't like this, <laughs> but will you do samples for possible fill-in work? Like she saw some something in my artwork, even though she didn't like the Channel Zero story. And I did a couple of samples for House of Secrets and The Invisibles, which were running at the time, and got, got nowhere with them. Um, but then Jim Val- Valentino had Image called. And he's like, I don't like this book, meaning the overall anthology. But he says, but I like your part. So do you want to do this as a comic for, for, for me? This is when he sort of had a little mini black and white mm-hmm. line going at the image. That was, that was his chunk of image. Um, and, uh, yeah, so that was, that was how that started out. So it was an image book first. Yeah. Oh, now, when so when that happens, and so last time we talked about um, kind of the the beginnings of how you got involved with Generation X, but we kind of glossed over exactly how Warren Ellis found you, or exactly how that connection kind of was made. Yep, that was um, he was my my first friend in comics. <laughs> Warren <laughs> um, tra- Transmet his his book tra- tra- Transmet was running at the time. It was fairly early on. I want to say it was like in its first year. And I love that book. Um, and he had his online message board that was like pretty brand new. Like it hadn't turned, turned, turned into the famous Warren, Warren Ellis forum at the time. Um, but he, he was online. I went online. I found him. He was extremely approachable. Um, and I don't know how, well, he, Long, the the short version is that he gave me a cover quote for Channel, Channel Zero. I don't know how I sent him a copy to look at. I don't <laughs> think I emailed him. So, I mean, this is like 1997. I don't, know. <laughs> I don't know. But he gave me a quote, and it actually ran on Channel Zero number two. And he talked it up. And that was basically it. So then we were sort of on this message board, and you know, the rest is history from there. But uh, um, I still have in my. I managed to save all these years a, a printout of the uh, of his email when he gave me that quote. Oh, wow. um, we uh, we uh, both had uh, AOL addresses, <laughs> which uh, tells you how how long long ago it was. <laughs> so yeah, and then and so then when Gen- Generation X, I mean, came around, that was like a year and a half later. Um, you know, and we had gotten used to uh, each other by then, and Channel Zero had run its course, and so I guess he had a, enough of a sense of me as a writer to, uh, you know, put, put me up for that job. Now, you said last time, not to continually reference our first conversation, but you did mention how you, you can't really look at your Generation X stuff. It kind of like hurts to look at, because obviously it was very early times for you. If you thought about what you would do differently, that like kind of what you now know and how you know how to write comics, what you would approach differently to make it kind of not feel so painful? Uh, it's hard to say, other than, I mean... The actual answer to that is to just do a better job. <laughs> um, to be more specific, I guess I would just... I mean, I cranked those thing, things out. Like, I had no sense of of craft 
or I don't, I don't know what the what the word is exactly, but I wrote them way too fast. And it wasn't like I didn't care. Like I understood this was important and it was an opportunity. And Warren was vouching for, for, for me and everything. So I wasn't being, it wasn't like I didn't care or I wasn't trying, but I really wasn't trying in a way. Like I was, you know, I should have like taken time. I should have like mapped it out, should have outlined it. I should have done multiple drafts before I, an editor even saw it, you know? Um, okay, I guess that's it. It's a little hard to think, think back to well, it, like what sure. I was thinking at the time. But I do remember writing those things in like a night <laughs> and emailing it in and that or being like, oh, you're done already? <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> you know, maybe it could have taken a couple more days. I don't know. Well, probably felt like a pretty pressure situation because like this is this is you know this is a big chance like this is a big opportunity you're getting vouched for by Warren this is Marvel Comics one of, you know the, the biggest publisher that there is in in comic books this is a tremendous opportunity even if it is on a kind of B or C list title to to actually you know prove yourself so it makes sense that you'd you know probably do it quickly because you don't know what these kind of things work on you just want to get the work in and done because who knows if this opportunity is ever going to happen again. I mean, I was gen genuinely uh, excited. You know, I was like eager to do it. Um, I had a day job at the time, so I remember I would get the email from from Warren during the day, and I'd come home and sit down, and I'd be like, "I got to do it right now," you know, because I was <laughs> super psyched. Um, but yeah, I, I tore through those uh, scripts um, like you wouldn't believe. I wish I could write that fast now. <laughs> So if we, we fast forward, so last time, you know, a lot was happening when we spoke last June. So we had Robotech was on the horizon, hadn't yet come out yet. You're in the middle of Rebels 2 releasing. I think issue three had just come out. Um, so a lot's happened since then. Uh, can we kind of maybe walk back and what was the initial reaction to your Robotech run and what was that like working on that book? Obviously, we talked about how much it meant to you and how you pitched multiple times to be able to do a Robotech book. So when you finally got to sink your teeth into it and really develop it, what was that like? Um, I enjoyed it. It was, I was pretty clear up front with a Titan that I didn't know how much I I could commit to because I have, I have TV pilot projects that I'm actually still working on (laughs) even a year later, but it's still like that is very stop and go, hurry up and and wait kind of thing. So I was hesitant to to commit to any long-term comics projects without you know and then run into some conflict on the tv side so i was up front i'm like let's like say i'll do one arc and then we'll like see how it goes um and so i ended up writing the first arc and they brought in simon Furman for the second arc um and i pro provided these sort of uh breakdowns for the issues um because the way I was uh, adapting the shows, I felt like was was specific to me, like the sort of like the critical, the kind of critical eye I was applying, mm-hmm. and what I was keeping and what I was not uh, in, in including. You know, I felt like should should be consistent. So I provided these like rough breakdowns, and I said to Simon, "I'm like, look, I don't care what you do with these. This is just just how I would do it." You know. See, see if it works, you know, don't feel like you have to like ask me anything, you know, it's your, it's your book really, even though my name's on the cover, you know, 
It shouldn't be. I remember I was like, it's embarrassing that they're still putting my name on the cover because you're doing like virtually all the work here. Um, so that was basically it. And my, my, I was very careful never to read any reviews of it or try to find out what people thought of it hmm. just because there's certain properties out there that have uh, fans that are a little, if I can say it, a little more passionate than others. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I've sort of learned through bitter tears what it's like to, 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 run, to run afoul of those truly hardcore fans, right? Yeah. And it's not pleasant. Like, you get, like, abuse. Like, on Conan, when I was writing Conan, that was the worst I've ever gotten. I got, like, death threats and abuse. And, you know, I, and because I got into it with them. Like, I tried to, like, defend my my choices. Mm -hmm. And it just, like, made it, like, a hundred times worse. And I'm like, you know what? This is, like, I have a feeling that this is something I should not try to to engage with. Um, So I just made it about the the work and not, not about trying to trying to interact with any fans or anything. Speaking of Conan, so does that kind of, did that impact as that was kind of happening and having that kind of response, was that affecting how you wrote the book or your enjoyment level of writing the book? Like did it kind of, kind of ruin a little bit of that aspect? It definitely affected my, my enjoyment. It didn't affect, it didn't make me change anything I was do, doing. Cause I, it was hard because I had very strict, uh, orders, <laughs> instruction from both Dark Horse and from the Robert E. Howard estate. They're like, we want a book that has this kind of a tone, this kind of a conan, physically and and emotionally. Like a lot of the crit- the criticism we got was it ranged from like the the art style, you know, like we had Becky Cloonan, we had people that were a little more cartoonish, you know, mm. than like the 70s Savage Sword style, right? The super masculine, super burly kind of <laughs> kind of Conan. And they specifically wanted a, a younger Conan. They pointed to passages in the source material where young Conan is described as having a very lean sort of build, you know, like panther-like, I think, was the, was the term, you know, <laughs> in the original books. And so that, that was our marching orders, you know? Um, he's like in love. This is his first love. He's a young guy. He's like twenty, you know. So, but of course, no one really, none of, the, none of that. I, I should stress that real, super hardcore fan fan base wanted wanted that, right? Mm-hmm. So Conan was called a fag. I was called called a fag. I'm sorry to use that term, but that was the term used. And it was like that level of of reaction that was so petty and gross and like stupid and uninformed and so i would try to defend myself and being like hey man you know i'm doing what i'm told told to do which is not the right which i shouldn't have even said you know because that no one wants to hear that you know it it doesn't actually help help anything so that it was a bummer like it was a real bummer um and uh like I still had to write the book that I was hired to 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 write, mm-hmm. and I honestly I got a slightly uh, I got a bit of pleasure 
<laughs> out of knowing that I was tweaking these people once they were sort of once because they're so homo homophobic and so abusive, you know, that I enjoyed the fact that I was driving them crazy. You know, they would say say things like, "I have a bookshelf in my in my house." With every Conan thing ever published, but I'm not buying yours. So, so now there's going to be a hole in my Conan. And honestly, I was like, good, good. I want you to look at that hole every single day for the rest of your life. You know? Like it was that. So it was like kind of fun in a, in a, in a, in a way. But uh, all things taken into account, um, it was just kind of a bummer, and it was a little scary at times because I did get actual death threats. Um, one of the guys that used to really threaten me is now, uh, I'm not going to say who he is, but he's actually a working professional in comics now. Oh, wow. Which is kind of a strange feeling. Um, he comes up to me at conventions and he's like, we're cool, right? And I'm like, yeah, sure. <laughs> but we're not. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So let's, we'll, we'll move, move on from Conan then. Um, <laughs> So, now, one thing that you've been doing more recently, so you've been working on RoboCop, Citizen's Arrest? Yeah. Now, how did, how did that kind of come about? How did Boom come to you, or was this something that you wanted to do, or...? It was, um, so my editor on that is Sierra Hahn, who was my Dark Horse editor. Um, she's the one that actually got me into Dark Horse initially from Vertigo. Um, I have all the time in the the world for her I love her, she's awesome She's an amazing editor Um, And I was having coffee with her Last year, she was in town For like the book expo And she was like, I don't know if you would really Want to do this, but Would you ever want to to write a Robocop? I feel like there's there's some Crossover of themes between Some of your past work And that, and I'm like, I would I agree, and I would really love to do that Um and it was that easy. I mean, it took a while. I mean, there was like, she didn't get back to me for like many, many months after that, but then she did. And she's like, are you still into this? And we talked and we really wanted to, um, you know, like in the spirit of that original film as much as possible with all the social satire, um, not just like the sort of violence you know, and, and the you know, but all the commercials and all the jokes and the humor of it, you know, and it really made me. It really re- reminded me of a lot of like '80s comics that I liked, like the old Frank Frank Miller stuff, or like American Flag, or other some of those like great '80s comics that were also very political and very socially mm-hmm. like on the on the pulse. Um, so. Yeah, and I mean, I love that book. I mean, I really, I'm writing my very first nine-panel grid. <laughs> Can't believe it's take, taken me over twenty years to do it, and this is the first and last time I'll ever write a nine-panel grid because <laughs> it takes like three times as long as a normal script. Like yeah. it's crazy. It's like my scripts are endless, like unbelievably long. It's a lot of writing. <laughs> but I wanted to sort of channel that. Like, I wanted to write in that style, you know, and we sort of, you know, the artwork works and the coloring works and, you know, I really got into, like, a groove with the with the, with the humor of it. It's been, a, it's been a lot of fun. Did you do any kind of research reading, like, reading other RoboCop renditions that have been done over the years or, like, rewatching the movies or did you just kind of go from what you knew? I really didn't. I went from what I knew and there was an article that... Um, 
I don't know if you saw it or even heard or heard of it, but there was a recent TV show, like recent meaning in the last year or two, called APB. Okay, yeah. I think it was on Fox. And it was like, basically, it was a Robocop. Right, that was the concept. Um, but like a modern version. It was like autonomous. It was like a police thing, but it dealt with like themes of like surveillance and autonomous policing and blah, blah, blah. Um, and there's an artic- article that my editor found that sort of said APV wants to be I'm sorry to bag on this show because I haven't actually watched the show I just read this article the article was saying APV wants to be Robocop and it gets it half halfway. it just doesn't do that humor in the social commentary it's just about the, the machines and the violence and so I kind of took that article as like a, bi- a bible almost I like went through the whole thing and I was like, this is what they're saying is important about the original Ro- Robocop. And I agree, right? So that really sort of, that set the tone, that helped set the uh, tone. It was like that, that our article and talking with the editor about it uh, and watching the original film. For sure. Um, but I didn't look at any comics. I had recently, un- unrelated, I had seen the remake yeah. movie from like several years ago. Um, but that was basically it. Um, what did you think and, of that remake? Uh, I enjoyed it. I like the actors. I like that main guy in it, and it definitely had like it, it scratched a lo- the itch of the visuals. But again, I mean, you just can't replicate that that original one. Like it was like so gory and so over the top, you mm-hmm. know. Um, all those commercials, you know, the like the like the electrocuting car seat and everything. It was like crazy. Uh, There's nothing like that. No. Um, <laughs> so. <laughs> so let's move move forward a little bit. So um, so Sword Daughter just the first issue just dropped literally this week. I guess just yesterday. Um, so where where did this come from for you? Like how did this get pitched? Uh, it's a it's a great book. It's really good art. It's a great story by you. I love the colors by Villa Rubia. I don't know how you guys convinced him to to do the uh, colors here, but <laughs> he uh, he really adds a, adds a, an extra sense of definition to the proceedings. But where did this come from? How did this kind of spring forth from your mind? And how did this get greenlit? Um, it, it, uh, I was about to say it was accidental, and that's not exactly true. But it was very like spur of the moment. Um, Mac Chatter and I, the artists, were doing Briggsland. And for boring reasons, Briggsland is on pause. It's like, whatever, it's a long story, but and it's, there's there's no drama there. But <laughs> Briggsland was, was going to go on a, on a hi, hiatus. And I was like, I, I love this team, this creative team. Like, maybe we should do something small. You know, like keep the keep the keep the band together, keep the party party going. Um, and I said to Mac, I'm like, you know, is there something you you want to do? And this is where I feel like the shadow of my Northlander series looms large, <laughs> because he's like, I want to do Vikings, and that's exactly what Gary Brown said when I asked him that same question, <laughs> and he said, I want to do Vikings, um, because they both were sort of had wished they were around and were able to have drawn some North Northlander stories, um, which is like a, something I hear a lot from a lot of artists. Um, that book really hit a, hit a chord. Um, 
So I'm like, all right, I'll go back to that well again. I mean, I was a little nervous about it, you know, um, and we looked at a couple options, like a couple different areas to like set the story. And I'm like, maybe it should be a, be a Western. Maybe it should be like an 18th century, like, like Canadian wilderness kind of thing, like the Revenant, you know? <laughs> I was like kick, kicking around other genres. And the group consensus just kept going back to Vikings because it was, uh, because I feel like we had twigged onto the concept of trying to mash it up with something. And specifically, Mac and I had a lot of common interest in samurai films. And not the samurai history. Like, I'm clear about that. Like, I'm not trying to tell. I'm, I'm referencing the, the the films, like the Criterion films that I have on my shelf. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, that's an interesting blend. That's something I can, I can say with some degree of confidence I have not seen, you know? Um, and I can write Vikings with with my eyes closed, you know. It's what Mac wants to do, so let's so let's give it give it a shot and see how this weird blend of things works out. Um, Mac, I give all the credit with that with sort of taking control of the coloring approach, which is really special. Um, I found Jose like I kind of know him a, li- a little bit. We have a lot of mutual friends, and it was a bit of a shot in the dark. And I think he, he took a pay cut for it. Um, but when he's when we sort of talked about, you know, Mac dug up some old European comics from like the 70s that he wanted to use as like a sort of a color template and like an approach style, like, you know, real minimalist and trying to recreate like a, like a, like a yellowing paper, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and th- those guys just took it and ran. And I was like, great, awesome. You know, I don't need to be like a part of this. You're the artist. You know, you should figure it out. And it's a beautiful book. I mean, you know, not to take myself out of it at all, but it's just like a stunningly beautiful book. Um, And it's, we got a commitment. We're going to do three books of three issues each. The issues are longer than normal. They're 28 story pages as opposed to 20. Mm-hmm. So it's about like four four issues worth of comics. Um, and, and, the, and the intention is to get back to Briggsland. Um, but this is like, and this is like a fun way to sort of like, you know, take, take a break and stretch some different. Mm-hmm. Now, when developing this, wh- how how does kind of where does Elspeth come from from you? Like, where did you kind of pull this? The idea of making it about her, making her the protagonist, and she's a very interesting protagonist because again, you're not really using traditional speech with her either because of how she was kind of raised and the difficulties she's had in her life. It came the whole parent and child thing. I think came from like seeing Lone Wolf and Cub on my shelf and seeing Cormac McCarthy's The Road on my shelf. Mm-hmm. And like I'm a parent of, of young kids, so is so is Mac. We're the, we're the, we're the same age. Our kids are basically the same same age. So and that was what, that's the story I really wanted to uh, to tell. Is as a parent, I have all these feelings of like like having like raising kids in like a uh, scary world. You know, you try your best to like prepare them for it and give them the tools to like protect themselves but you also know there's only so much you can do you know 
you know, they, they're going to cross the road on their own at some point, you know? <laughs> and it's sort of like this, uh, sort of like a bittersweet feeling. There's like guilt mixed in with that. There's like, you know, the sort of obligation and like the idea of like teaching them like how to, how to exist in the world, but also knowing you, you, you have to let go. So those were the themes I was, I was really, really into. And the way that Elspeth talks, because obviously she's, there's, there's a, narr- a narration thread going of her speaking in perfect adult mm. English. Yeah. So that's a tip off that we're going to either skip around in time or advance time to where she's a grown up. But in the visual part of the, of the story, she's a little, she's basically been living on her on her own in the woods, basically. <laughs> and so I was like, how can, that was a really interesting creative challenge. Like, how do we do that? Like, I don't want her to be just mute because that's boring. You know, it's like, yeah, you know, she has to be able to inter- interact, and so um, I came up with the idea. Then I, I called them uh, emojis, and I said to Mac, <laughs> "I'm like, hey Mac, come up with like a language of like emojis, but they got to be in Norse, and they can't be cute." Which is like basically, I told them, "I'm like, why don't you go fly to the to the moon right now?" You know, it's like an impossible task, you know. And so we worked on it and worked on it, and we looked at old Norse art, and I'm like, it has to be simple. It has to be a stamp. You know, I want it to be like a little stamp, like an emoji, not like a drawing. You know, mm-hmm. it's a constant. We're we're still refining it. You know, I still struggle to write that. I'm like, I know what Elspeth has to say, but what is the picture for it? No, no idea, you know. Um, and so Mac and I work on it, and work on it, and work on it. It's 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 really hard, but it's a fun challenge. Um, and you know that over time she'll come out of her shell. She'll she'll start to like learn actual words and everything. So it's not going to be forever. You know, I won't be making Mac come up with these things by she like nine. You know, mm-hmm. but. Uh, it's, I feel like it also kind of feeds into the the genre mashup a little bit, you know. Um, these like weird picti- pictograms, which obviously are not real, real, realistic. You know? mm-hmm. It's interesting too the um, the kind of mythic quality just by having you know, the family die and then uh, the father you know goes to sleep and it just kind of wakes up like a decade later. That's a really kind of ethereal quality to the to the story. I didn't want to go like there's there's going to be a couple of things like that as we go that are this is how I uh, I balance all these subsequent Viking stories against Northlanders which was like straight down the middle historical super accurate right mm-hmm. um, when I did Black Road with 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 Gary, with Gary Brown he didn't have a huge interest in the historical accuracy and I don't really blame them. That's a lot of work for an artist. So I'm like, let's just, I'm like, do whatever you want. I'm just going to make it about the action, you know, have fun. You know, this is not we are not even going to worry at all about the accuracy of this, you know, um, sword daughter falls a little bit in the middle. Um, I wanted to have, I wanted it to look accurate and feel real, you know, um, and Mac was interested in trying to like achieve a level of accuracy, but I wanted to introduce these. They're not supernatural. I guess mythic, as you said, is probably a better term. Things that aren't real, that don't make sense. But if we can figure out a way where you can buy them, 
or you can buy into it in the story, um, that'd be great. Um, and the fact that he falls into this 10-year cat- catatonic sleep where he's in the lotus position, which is like straight out of the samurai thing, you know? Mm. Um, if we can make that work right out of the gate, then I think we're good. <laughs> and I and I think it works. I mean, no one's ever been like, "What the hell? The hell is this?" You know. And we somehow made it made it function in the in the reality of the story. Well, I think it's interesting too because from a reader's perspective, for me, it was interesting because like if you had him just disappear, that would have a very different feel of him actually abandoning his his family as opposed to just sincere grief overtaking oneself and actually kind of knocking you out and actually kind of just putting you into this state for that long. Um, it's, it kind of works better. And again, it makes it feel less like outright abandonment. Um, it feels more like, you know, just almost like broken heart kind of did this to him, even though he had someone still alive. Yeah, I definitely agree. And it also sort of, I mean, the unspoken thing, or at least unspoken in the story uh, between those two is that she's been watching over over him mm-hmm. you know he's just been sitting there like presumably helpless like presumably exposed to to the elements and we don't see it but the logic would tell you that she's been kind of like the child has been kind of watching over the parent you know all, all this time and then he wakes up and he's like i'm the dad you know you stop stop doing doing that and of course she's she's not gonna appreciate that <laughs> yeah. i'm curious about your script so there's um early on when i guess we're kind of seeing how time is passing and there's a shot of her kind of like with with uh, with firewood and then there's just a shot with her like with like dead animals and uh kind of showing that she's becoming self you know self-sufficient able to hunt um was that kind of in your script or was that more from the artist showing it was the definitely in the uh, script um the the facts of the matter are like that their village was burned and she would be around two and when he would wake up she would be 12 um two is pretty young so in when mac got to actually draw the page it just seemed like a bit too much i'm like like a fox would come along and eat her, you know, like it was like too young, but she she would have been too, too helpless, you know, mm-hmm. like I needed something, even though this is obviously a fantastical, you know, ele- element to this to story, like, like the, he had actually drawn her as two and it was like, you know what, that's just too much. <laughs> so he, he aged her up a bit. So like the, the transition of her from whatever age she would be to what she is now is a little less jarring you know um mac also used his own daughter as like a visual model for for elspeth so i think he was like so you know he was like had had that in that mind and was kind of basing it off of how she changed over time so so i just let him roll roll with it Mm -hmm. one thing i noticed about this first issue and maybe this will be true of future issues as well is that it definitely felt like you uh, kind of dialed back, kind of giving unnecessary kind of dialogue or narration and kind of let the artwork speak for itself and really giving it more of a cinematic quality that you weren't kind of crowding out uh, what was happening on the page and really letting everything kind of breathe, especially with a character who, again, doesn't really communicate in a typical way. Um, it felt very natural. And again, 
it allowed those extra pages to really feel even more lived in. Like there's a lot more going on. It definitely felt like a bigger story. Um, there's that sequence later on where you have um, the guy kind of running away from the dad. And there's it's a great cinematic sequence of just like you, on, the, on the top panel, he, you have the guy running away and he's in the far right-hand corner. And just a panel of, you know, just the, the landscape. And then you have the father running behind. And it's again, it's you're not overpopulating it with too many words, but you're just like kind of letting the artwork be cinematic. And I thought it was extremely effective. It's, it was definitely a choice. Um, it's it's a couple of things. I mean, one was the obvious like cine, cinema influence on the story. Um, I wanted to give Mac all the freedom or all the leeway he he wanted. Um, so, I'm like, my first draft of that script had even less dialogue. It was like bare bare bones. It was all description. And after the art came in, I went back in and did another pass and fleshed out some things, you know, um, because I didn't want like, this was some, sometimes you just know in your gut what a story is. And I was like, this is not a story that needs a lot of words. Um, over time, possibly like it's just, now it's just the two of them in like an empty wilderness, you know, later when they go to like, like, a city, or for example, when there's more people around, that's going to obviously necessitate more more interactions on the page. But for this first one, and uh, you know, I let them just you know, I let, I let the art shine, which is a bit of a risk. And you know, I get a, I've gotten a couple of comments where people are like, "There's not a lot of story here," and it, what they mean is there's not a lot of talking. Mm-hmm. You know, there's plenty of story of story there. You know. Um, it just isn't a lot of like lettering on the page, which, um, not to say that the comment is, is, is not valid, but it's like a conscious choice. You know, the, the stories there were just telling it, you know, heavily, heavily in pictures, uh, at least for this first issue. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing I'll say about that is a lot of that I think is my TV writing experience coming through. Um, one thing I've, I struggle with in writing for, for TV is I write too much exposition because Mm -hmm. comics really is all about writing exposition. No one wants to hear that, (laughs) but you're really describing a lot in the comic because you have a limited amount of pages and a limited amount of space on the page. You know, you have to fit things into a box, um, and so, and in TV, I've sort of been forced to sort of go back and unlearn that, and let the camera be the, be what tells the the story, and the dialogue is lets you know what the characters are thinking and feeling, you know. But the camera is what's telling the story in TV and movies. So I've sort of like sub subconsciously, I think I'm like applying that into this comic. What can you tease? I mean, I, this is obviously just started, and as you said, there's kind of a series more of, of different stories that are going to come. But any kind of tease you can give us about what to expect in the future? It's well, the, a big tease is obviously you're getting narration of a presumably an adult or at least an older Elspeth. Um, so you can look forward to that. We throw a bit of a curve curveball in issue three, as far as that goes. You know. Um, which was done really on the fly. Like I sort of had this wild ass idea 
and emailed <laughs> Mac and I'm like, what do you think if we do this instead of our, our, our plan? And he's like, it's good. So then I emailed the editor. I'm like, do you mind if we do, do this instead of the plan that everybody at Dark Horse has like signed, signed off on? And he's like, yeah, do it. It'll be good. Um, so you can look, look forward to some, some, a left, a left turn coming in issue three. <laughs> Um, but other than that, I mean, the, we uh, we we set up this revenge quest, you know, against the forty swords. Obviously, it's not going to be forty issues, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but they are going to sort of like, I mean, their stated goal is to get their revenge on these dudes, you know. And we're going to learn learn about the forty swords more, um, and have them basically find them, work their way through through the crowd. <laughs> So I want to switch gears then, um, and, and so uh, so first of all, I am excited for more Sword Daughters. So I can't wait for more. But uh, so last last time we had our conversation, only three issues of the second volume of Rebels had come out at that point. Uh, now, obviously, it's been completed. My first question, I guess, is an is a simple one: is Are we going to get more Rebels at some point? Because I absolutely love your book; it's so fantastic. That is, I would love love to do it, and I already have the basic story for a third volume. Um, I haven't gotten the clearance from Dark Horse yet, and the artist, Andrea, he's in the process of, of uh, immigrating to the uh, States, so which is like no, no joke in the age of Trump. I mean, he's been working on that thing for like a year, you know, all mm-hmm. the applications, everything he, ha- he has to do. So he's like pretty busy. So... Um, and we don't feel any any real urgency. I mean, I, th- I think we'll like eventually do it, but we're not like going to like rush it before it's time. Do you have an idea what kind of time period you'd be covering? Obviously, the you know the first series was uh, pretty strictly on the Revolutionary War, and this newer one was obviously more about eighteen twelve. But then you also had some one shots that kind of went back. You had a, you know an early story of Washington. You had a story of with uh, with Hamilton. So you were kind of still playing in that Revolutionary period, and even actually a little bit earlier. Do you have an idea where that kind of main story would come in a third volume, or can you even share? sort of, I mean, right now, the way it stands is I want to do the Whiskey Rebellion, which is like, I mean, I, what I look for in, in Rebels is stories from, from then that feel like they could be stories now, like, like similar themes, like parallel themes then and now. And the Whiskey Rebellion is all about like states' rights and taxation, you know, after, after the Revolutionary War, but like just after it, mm-hmm. you know. And it's all like like Hamilton and Jefferson, like fighting over, you know, how much power the federal government has versus states. That's an extremely academic way of putting it. Um, it's called the Whiskey Rebellion, which is a great name for anything. <laughs> you know? um, so it, it's an exciting sort of like almost like a, not exactly, but something approaching like you know homegrown terror terrorism stories, you know. Like his little mini mini rebellion in the states against his brand new government. So it's juicy stuff. 
Um, now, a question I have is, so, I mean, the, you, the thorough line through the first, I guess, what, four or five issues of the the second Rebels series was on John Abbott. Um, obviously, his story is kind of told, and as you kind of said before, when you're kind of done with the character, you don't necessarily feel an urge to kind of go back to the character, but with John especially, there's a lot of kind of stuff that happens in the middle, a lot of time with him being in prison. Is that something that you're ever kind of interested in kind of showing more of what that was like once he was uh, arrested as a mutineer or kind of going more into that? I think I'm done with John. Honestly, that was the story I wanted to tell. I don't know how much interest I have (laughs) in any other aspects of his life. I mean, he was a vehicle for the, for the themes, you know, he wasn't like a traditional character in the sense that he was like, it's almost like the, the reader was sort of like in his body. Like he, he he he's like our tourist through mm-hmm. a couple of pivotal points in that in that war. Um, I have not decided if I want to keep the party going and, and have another Abbott. Mm-hmm. Um, I did think I did have a secondary story. Like like if we did in in Rebels three, if we did what we did in Rebels two, where we have one big story and then like a smaller couple stories. You know, um, I do have a Mercy Abbott story that would take place during that long stretch stretch of time in the first volume when Seth was off fighting the war and she was like alone at, at home mm. you know I have a couple story, stories about, about that I felt like she deserves to be doing more than just you know weeding the garden in their, in their home <laughs> you know while, the, while he's off having all the fun in this um, vo- in this volume, when you had those kind of three stories that weren't connected to the kind of the, the main thrust of the first five, which of those was kind of your favorite to write? Um, I like the young Washington. Well, I don't know. I like them all in different ways. The young Washington st- story um, was just fun because it's fun to sub- subvert a figure like Washington, like in a like he's mythology basically he's like american mythology mm-hmm. you know and you think of him in a certain way and he's always shown in a certain way and you're supposed to give him all the all the respect he's earned and but so but when you make him when he's like 20 and he's like kind of a dick you know <laughs> um and he did all that like he basically started that french and indian war i mean he was like he was like the classic sort of like colonist type who viewed, who considered everything within his his eyesight his for the taking, you know um, like, a, like a rich kid he's, he's like a Trump kid basically like arrogant, <laughs> like entitled too too young to be smart you know, to be wise basically that was just like a lot of fun um the other one was the other one I liked was the one with the two kids in Brooklyn, um, which was like the that um, Battle of Long Island. I've I've that's been told told a lot, right? I felt like I've read a million books books about that. So I, but this is where I live. I live in Brooklyn. Like my daughter's school is literally like like two hundred feet away from this house that's a museum where there was a battle you know like we kind of like are right in the middle of this there's plaques in our park you know this is where the virginian regiment died and all the stuff like that during the battle of brooklyn 
so I wanted to sort of find find my own spin spin on that. Um, so so that was like a satis- satisfying story to write. Was it enjoyable using Hamilton too? It was, but it's different now. You know, when I wrote that first first one, Hamilton the musical was barely a thing. Um, that that's how long ago it seemed, doesn't seem like it was that that long long ago, but it, it was. So now when I'm writing this, it's like everything's different now. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say, it's hard even because I'm a fan of that musical. I'm a like super fan, so it's hard to uh, forget, forget about it. You know. I'm like Hamilton shouldn't look look like that. I'm so so used to the to the actors in the musical, you know, mm. that it seems weird and it seems off, and I feel like I'm not writing it right, you know. So it definitely <laughs> it definitely has it's it's an influence I constantly have to fight, you know, um, because for better or for worse, you know, my story is not that, you know, mine's like the the old fashioned version of this history <laughs> it's weird it's weird and then i guess the, the last story i shouldn't have shouldn't have been a surprise given what you've spoken about before and you know your affection for the green mountain boys that we could see more of their story um and kind of how they interacted um what was what kind of did you do additional research into the green mountain boys to kind of develop the story as presented here no, I know enough about them. Um, they're like my, you know, the heroes of my childhood, you know, kind of thing. I grew up around there. So, like, I mean, I knew about the battle. Like, that's that lake is the lake I, I grew up on. Like, you know, um, what I liked about that is um, it, was, it was another chance to show a founding father as kind of a dick, <laughs> which is when they go to see John Adams and say, hey, you know, you said you were going to pay us. You know, us militia, we evolved, volunteered. So now's the time. You got to like su- support us back. And uh, I like the idea of them kind of like like strong st- strong arming Adams into it. You know, um, but Adams like fully fully ready to just turn his back on. Him. Now that's like a fun thing. That's the kind of thing I like to do. Kind of turn something on its on its head. Mm-hmm. Um, but that march back from from Quebec to Fort Ticonderoga is a famous thing. So, yeah. I've, I've read a lot of stories of that when I was a kid. So, of course, I wanted to do my uh, version of it. Mm-hmm. So now that we've had two volumes of Rebels, who, uh, of all the historical figures you've gotten to kind of play with, which one was your favorite to kind of put words into their mouth? Well, I want to say Washington, but it's it was definitely fun. Right, I feel like I wish I could give you a, a better answer than what I just got done talking about. Um, the the other thing that was a real high point for me, and this isn't exactly a historical figure, but in in the first volume, I did that riff on. Uh, uh, oh man, see now I'm blanking on it. The woman with the uh, Molly Molly picture the woman yes who stepped stepped up with the cannons um i mean that's like american folklore you know molly pitcher is like a construct you know she's based off of off of a real thing off of a real thing that happened i'm sure over and over and over again um so it's not exactly a specific historical figure i'm showing but it's uh like it's it's an amalgam you know um 
And that was, I mean, I feel like that was one of the things I had at the very beginning when I first thought of doing a, a comic about this. And I was like, I want to do the Molly, Molly picture thing. That was always there from, from day one. And uh, Matthew Woodson, who's an amazing artist, drew the hell out of that story. Mm-hmm. So that's a real high point. When you're crafting, I mean, so it's interesting reading Rebels because obviously, again, you have the main story and then you also have these other shorter stories. Um, do you, from a historical context, do you find it easier to write the kind of the, the larger uh, multi-issue kind of storylines with, uh, you know, kind of weaving a character in and out of historical um, uh, moments? Or do you find it more interesting to kind of pick um, a shorter moment and just kind of do a, sh- a shorter story or just a one-issue focus on that particular, uh, you know, version of events or that character the short stories are much more satisfying personally and easier Hmm. um that's not to say that that you know that that's no slam against the longer stories but i've like ever since i did demo i love the there's a beauty to like a single issue story because you're you're not telling a traditional three arc story here. It's like a moment in time. Like you have a lot more flexibility, um, and you can isolate moments or like a sequence of things. You can make it all about a certain decision, and it kind of frees you up from having to tell a story with like a beginning, middle, end, and end. Um, that's really nice when you're dealing with with the historical thing, because you can say, okay, I'm going to do a short uh, single issue about this historical event, but because that's too big for like a single issue story, I'm going to like edit it down. I'm going to find out like the kernel of it. Like what's the most important part. Mm -hmm. What's the most important scene in this? Like what has the most resonance? And then I can be like, what's a different way to tell it? Like, I I feel like I have a lot more flex flexibility just because there's already compromise built into the fact that it's only 20 pages long as opposed to like a hundred, if I'm doing like a full, full arc. Yeah. Um, so it's a lot more fun and it's a, it's a creative challenge in like the best way possible. Um, the other telling like a four issue or a six issue arc is an entirely different approach. Um, and it's not like one is better or worse, but I like when I think of, Back, it's the single issues that always like stand out for me as having been the most fun or the most memorable. Mm-hmm. Well, you you worked with some amazing artists on the different Rebels stories, but is is there any artist you can think of who hasn't worked on a Rebels book that you think would actually be a really good fit for you know portraying the historical accuracy and being able to still tell a very compelling story and using you know the the period dress of the time to really help them to help uh, sell that because it's a very specific skill, obviously. It is, and it's not really for, for everyone. This is, I hesitate to answer this question because I've asked so many artists, <laughs> <laughs> and so many of them are just like, oh, I don't think I can do it, or it's not really for, for me. A couple artists have, have started and then backed out because it was a challenge. It was a challenge. It was different, you know? Like, I, I approached a lot of Marvel artists. Um, that I love, like these super dy- dynamic artists that I knew from when I was doing X-Men and stuff. And I wanted that energy. Like I wanted to, to sort of marry that Marvel 
super attractive, glossy action. I wanted to see that in a, in a different setting. I always loved, loved those, those guys, but they're so like entrenched at Marvel. You mm. cannot get them out. <laughs> they're so busy. Like Marvel keeps them locked, locked down, you know? Um, but I was like, this is only a single issue. You know, I kept trying to get them and, uh, it was like, it was, it was really, really hard. Um, I, I like the idea of seeing that unusual choice in something like Rebels or that unexpected choice rather than getting somebody maybe who's, who's more indie who could be like, oh, yeah, I, I already can like imagine what that guy's, you know, Green, green, green Mountain Boys would, would look like. You know, that's a, that's a more of an obvious pick, you know. Mm-hmm. I always tried, tried to go like a little different. When you when you were doing, so I don't want to name a name because I don't want to out anybody as being somebody that said no or or backed out or anything like that. Um, so I'll be general about it. That's fair. When uh, when you were um, plotting out the the again the the major arc for Rebels two, um, how did uh, how did Andrea feel about how many boats you're going to have him draw? I oh I asked him first. I really did. <laughs> I was like, I'm not going to like begin on anything. <laughs> until you tell me that you, if you mind this or not, because this is crazy, like a full ship under sail. I mean, there's a couple things I always ask artists. I'm like horses, because horses seem impossible to draw to me. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, if there's a lot of cars, I always make sure that's, that's cool. And then in this case, I was like the boats, you know, and Andrea's like, like, like an unbelievably positive excited guy i wish i could bottle what what he has i don't know how that guy wakes up every morning in like the best mood ever um he's like yes yes i will do it and he went out and bought models you know like the like like the ships in a bottle except it wasn't in in a in a bottle but like a replica like a replica of like (laughs) what what one of those original you know ships um so i was like all right you know i'm gonna go for it then (laughs) For sure. Well, he yeah. really he really sells it. I mean, especially in what was it? I think issue four, uh, where you have like the entire naval battle. Like that that issue either works or it doesn't, based purely on the artwork. Like if if it doesn't sell the authenticity of the ships you're seeing, if it doesn't sell the action of these two ships being so close to each other and just bombarding each other, it doesn't work. Yeah. And yet he absolutely sells the hell out of it. Yeah, I'm sure I told, told him to go look at Master and Commander. Um, for that sort of um, that just that chaos, like the overwhelming noise, you know, mm. that movie is great. Those battles are really good because it takes, you know, some a very old old fashioned kind of battle and makes it like insane, you know, like the splintering wood flying everywhere and just like the it's like all those people. It's like it's, it's like the world was ending every time one of those cannonballs smashes through the <laughs> through the ship. Um, and he did great. I mean, he's really, really good at those kinds of kinds of scenes. Well, it's, it's interesting you make that mention because, yeah, you can almost you can hear the pages. Like you know, like again, there's so much going on. There's so much, as you said, that that kind of controlled chaos. As you have these two ships just fighting it out to to see who's going to be destroyed first, you can hear how deafening everything would be just on the page, and that's a very difficult feat to kind of carry off. Well, a big note that I, I've given every artist. Is I was like, yeah, this is his- historical, but please do not think of like illustrated classics. Like, think <laughs> of like a Ridley Scott, you know, 
like when Ridley Scott does his historical things, like that's the tone we should be aiming for more than like more than like a story a storybook, you know. All right. Well, Brian, thank you so much. Um, looking forward, obviously you're working on, well, eventually Briggsland's going to come back. You have the, the, the current project, um, Sword Princess. What else do we have kind of to look forward to? All right. So Robocop, um, Sword Daughter, the thing we didn't really talk about, but it's going to come out. I honestly don't, don't know when, but it's, but it's been announced, which is like a Terminator min- mini series okay. from Dark Horse. Uh, with Jeff Stokely on on art, that's that's in previews, so that's in, imminent. Um, and then there's like the you know the super annoying thing of like there's things I can't say yet. <laughs> but there's 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 always those you know for sure. Um, hopefully soon. Hopefully by like New York Comic Con, everything will be out there. What was it like getting a call to write a Terminator book? It was uh, like one of those things that was like a little bit of a default. Like their dark horse is like, Hey, you know, we're gonna, you know, I think when, I think publishers, when they have a license, there's like, they they have to do X amount of it Mm -hmm. in a period of time. So like, we need to do a Terminator book. You got any ideas? I'm like, yeah, I do. So uh, my idea just super quick is, uh, it's, it's the premise is that on the same night that Arnie was sent back to L.A. to kill Sarah Connor, there was, like, another one sent to New York City to kill another woman who was going to give birth to, like, another hero of the, of the resistance. So it's like a redundancy. <laughs> <laughs> and the idea is that maybe there were Terminators sent, like, all over the world. You know, who, who says John, John Connor has to be the only one, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so it's the, it's a very fam- familiar story, just, like, set in, like, these, like, this crazy, like, rough part of New York City overnight, and the woman, the mother in question is a cop. So uh, it kind of has, like, I really played up the 80s-ness of it, and Jeff is doing, doing a good job of that. It's almost like a the Warriors in the sense that it's a little bit over the top, you know, that kind of eighties action movie, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's a lot of fun. It's already, we've already finished it. So now we just got to wait for it to come out. How many issues is it? Four. It's a, it's a short, short one. And what's the name of the, the miniseries for everyone to know? Uh, Terminator sector war. Hmm. Did you pick the title or did yeah. someone, or someone in marketing or editorial pick it? It was, it was the working title that, was stayed on by de- by by default. <laughs> you know, I, my my experience with titles is either have it immediately, or it's like an absolute agony of pulling teeth to to come up with one. Right? It's never anything in the middle. So we uh, thought about it for I think months. You know, and I had had sector born there because a big part of the of the story is that she never wants to leave her uh, car like like this cop's car is like her castle right through mm. all these through this night-long battle with this term terminator her car is really all she has and when and if she loses the car then she's like on foot and so much more vulnerable so and those cars are called sec- sector cars back then 
So that was kind of where it came from. Okay. And honestly, after a while, everybody just got used to it. So <laughs> stuck. <laughs> I'm not, I know I'm not doing a good good job selling selling it by <laughs> describing it that way, but you know, this is how the sausage gets gets made at times. Well, so so it does make me ask. So with with the second volume of Rebels again, did you kind of have that subtitle already kind of picked out when you started work on it, or did that come later? Because it's these free and independent states, which is a great subtitle for Rebels. It was. Um, I wouldn't say it was immediate, but I I wanted a phrase. I wanted a recognizable phrase like the a well regulated militia with the first volume. Mm-hmm. So, like, I knew it had to be something like that. So, it probably t- took me fifteen or twenty minutes of looking around, looking for like a phrase like that. Like, I looked in the Constitution, I looked in the Bill of Rights, I looked in, you know, famous quotes. You know, I just like poked around until uh, until that came came came, you know, swim swim up to the surface. You know, and I was like, good. I, it, it took a, lo- a little bit of a bit of selling with Dark Horse. I, I don't know if they loved it, because um, I think the actual phrase is uh, "a free and independent state," and so like I tweaked it a bit to okay. "these free and independent states." Plural. I mean, um, it is. It does feel very thematic to again that the, the the thorough line for those first five issues because you have kind of now you have the country, but now what happens next? Yeah. Sure. Well, again, Brian, thank you so much for spending so much time with us today, and we look forward to all of your upcoming projects and even the ones you can't talk about yet. Yeah, it's it's always a always a pleasure anytime. Excellent. Thank you so much. Sure. Thanks.